You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Luke's in your New Testament. It's the third gospel in the New Testament. It's the last third chunk of your Bible. So it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you hit John, you've gone too far. I'm going to read starting in verse 26. And we're going to take this in three chunks today. Just do one chunk at a time. And let me just pray for God's favor before, before we jump in. Heavenly Father, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So help feed us this morning from your word. Make these truths real and sweet to us. Convict us of sin and righteousness and point us to the beauty of your son, Christ. And just pray that he would, his magnificence, his beauty, his strength, his power, his honor would shine forth in this text, and that we'd all be encouraged by the example of Mary, one of the great mothers of, of the Bible. Amen. Okay, so please look at Luke 26 with me. Again, I'm going to read verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angels answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Really great text, really famous text. And the original audience of Luke's letter would not have missed what's going on in Gabriel's announcements. It's laced through with all sorts of uh, biblical themes and images and things like that. There are a lot of allusions or hyperlinks back to previous passages, things that have happened in the Old Testament. And so it's important that we pause here and understand all that Luke intends to communicate through this. And so if you will look closely at verses 32 and 33... Read those with me again. This is the way Gabriel describes the child that Mary is going to give birth to. It says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. Excuse me. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's pretty tall talk. Talking about a, a new baby to be born. We don't often look at little babies uh, with, with such high hopes. Uh, but this is Gabriel's hope for this infant that Mary will give birth to. And if you were a Jew living in the first century AD, all right, under the Roman Empire, this announcement by Gabriel would have caused quite a stir. That's because the Jewish people, after having returned from exile in Babylon, they came back to the land under Cyrus the Great in 520 BC. They had a very brief period where God spoke to them through a few prophets like Zechariah, Joel, in Malachi, and then they experienced a period of silence for like 400 years. So no prophets, no dreams, no visions, at least nothing that 
that we hear of or that's recorded. And so this announcement by Gabriel in this chapter is unique in two regards. First of all, it'd be a huge source of comfort, a reminder that God is working. Even when we feel like he's been silent, he's far away, we don't see what his purposes are. You're like, wow, God's speaking again. This is crazy. And the actual content of the message. So the message alone would have been uh, phenomenal, inspiring, really exciting. But the content of the message is even better. The message is that this son of David is coming. It has massive echoes of a previous announcement that God made to David about a thousand years before this point in time. And there's just all these echoes resonating from this passage in 2 Samuel 7. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to summarize it briefly. But in 2 Samuel 7, David has conquered the surrounding areas and defeated the enemies of Israel that have been persecuting them, oppressing them for hundreds of years. He's built himself a fancy palace in Jerusalem. And he thinks, hmm, I'm living in this really nice palace. God's still dwelling in the tabernacle. This was the tent, of, the tent that the Israelites constructed. Uh, God gave them the instructions back in Exodus. And so they could pack up the tent. It's like a portable sanctuary, a portable church or temple that they could move around with them as they roamed through the desert. And then later when they went into the land, they set it up uh, notably at Shiloh. But God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, is still associated with this tent. Well, David is living in a fancy palace. So he says, I'm going to build a house for you, God. I'm going to build a huge, beautiful temple now that we're kind of a, a on the, up and coming on the scene power in the Middle East and have some wealth and, and things like that. But God responds by saying, no, I'm going to build a house for you. And by house, he means like a ruling dynasty. And so then God promises to give David a son or like an heir to his kingdom. He, that is this descendant, is going to be great. God says he will be my son. He will sit on David's throne forever and his kingdom will have no end. And that's exactly what Luke records, like almost word for word, right? As Gabriel's announcement to Mary. Gabriel's good news is that this long-awaited son of David is about to be born and will take up his great, 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 great grandfather's throne to rule God's people again and his kingdom will have no end. In fact, both Luke and Matthew emphasize the Messiahship or that kingship, that word Messiah is the Hebrew word for like chosen one. The king was the chosen one to lead God's people. Both the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke emphasize Jesus's kingship more than any other theme in the openings of their gospel. That's what they want you to see as you begin hearing the story of Jesus, that he's not just a cute little baby. Uh, he's not just the savior of the world, but he's also this coming king that was long promised to rule over God's people. And this is what the Jewish nation has been waiting for, for like 500 years. And so you say, that sounds great. Let's get this thing going, right? The Messiah is finally here. What exciting news. And then if you pause to kind of think about uh, the, ter the terrain you're fighting on, so to speak, or your situation, you realize that Jesus' mother and father are a skay, impoverished Jewish couple living kind of across the tracks among uncircumc uncircumcised pork-eating Gentiles in Galilee. They don't live in Judea. And you realize that Judea already has a king, King Herod, and he's not going to take too kindly to this announcement that there's this new guy who's going to take over the throne. Like, just step down, Herod. We've got Jesus now. I don't think so. And you realize that the most powerful man in the entire ancient world and the current ruler of the most powerful empire that ever existed, Caesar Augustus, is reigning from Rome, and he has over 100,000 disciplined soldiers across 28 legions who are ready to come traipsing into Judea 
crush any sort of revolt or hint of rebellion if there's some sort of king who's going to set himself up as ruler of the world. You couldn't have picked a worse time to execute this plan, right? From like a human perspective. This sounds crazy. And so once you consider all of this, any reasonable person would start to ask questions about God's judgment. Like, uh, you sure you really want to pit the Messiah against the Roman Empire at the very height of its power? I mean, he's going to get an army to pull this thing off? Are you really think your people are even going to follow the son of a lowly construction worker and a morally circumspect woman who have spent decades living among pagan Greeks and those awful Samaritans? The moment he starts drawing attention to himself, he's going to be ridiculed, persecuted, and killed. Do you really read your Bible slow enough to get sucked into the drama of it all? Right? It's so easy for those of us who know how the story ends, who have heard this verse maybe every, every Christmas, you read the Christmas narrative as a family, that's good, you should do that. But it's really easy to become so familiar with the stories that we don't really let them land on us and experience it like, like the original characters would have been, right? Instead of letting the tension of the moment wash over us as it would have to the people who experienced the real event. And so Mary, a destitute teenage virgin of an oppressed people group, has just been told that she will give birth to the savior of the world and future king of all the world doesn't sound like a convincing game plan to everyone with, anyone with a pulse. But then notice her response in verses 37 and 38. This is what's remarkable. This is what we're going to spend our time thinking about and discussing this morning. Shh. Verses 37 and 38. She says, Behold. Oh, sorry. The, the angel says, Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She doesn't gawk at the angel in disbelief or mock him for announcing such a preposterous scheme. All she asks is how the whole pregnancy thing is going to work out because she's not married. And then once he explains that, she replies dutifully with these words. See, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. That's it. Sounds good, Gabriel. Whatever you need. I'm God's servant. What humility, right? What faith, what an incredible response to some really, really exciting and terrifying and difficult news. To hear, quite frankly, the most ludicrous plan in the whole Bible and respond with, aye, aye, captain, full speed ahead. How could you do that? What would give someone the willingness to humbly sign on for what seems like an impossible plan? Well, Mary must have been an incredible woman of faith, and to possess such faith I think she had to know her Bible really, really well. Because in her time, her Bible would have been her Old Testament. So it's like this big chunk, the first two-thirds of your, the book you've got in front of you, unless you've got a phone. And when Gabriel reveals to Mary God's plans, in verse 37, that nothing will be impossible for God, Mary can respond in faith and willing service because she knows that sounds exactly like the kind of thing God would do. What do I mean by that? Well, if you remember, and if none of these stories sound familiar to you, that's okay. Just hang on, stick around long enough, and, uh, and they'll become familiar to you. If you remember that since the fall of Adam and Eve, God didn't just abandon his creation to sin, death, and misery. He called an idol-worshiping geriatric couple out of Sumeria to a land that they'd never been to before and gave them a miraculous pregnancy as well. And he created an entire nation out of their, their kids, the nation of Israel, and that was, that was Abraham and Sarah. And then God took his family of tribes who were by this time serving as slaves in Egypt 
And he rescued them from what at the time was also the most powerful superpower of the ancient world through a murderer turned shepherd with a speech impediment. And that guy was Moses. And then when God's people had strayed from him and were under constant attack from the Philistines, God took the youngest son, the runt of a no-name shepherding family from Judah with no training or combat experience whatsoever and used him to slay the enemy's champion with a river pebble in a slingshot. And that boy's name was David. And he's the great, 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 great ancestor of Mary and Joseph. So the one to whom God promised a forever throne and a never-ending kingdom. So you see, God loves to work through human weakness. God loves to work through human weakness. Mary must have seen this. Story after story in the Bible is about God using weak, pathetic, sinful, smelly, dirt creatures called humans to accomplish his grand cosmic purposes. And when the dust is settled and God's people can see exactly what God is doing, then they can only stand in awe and glorify him because it could never have come out any other way than through his power. His way, his timing, his wisdom, his strength throughout the Bible. We see God working in such a way that you, the reader, are left with nothing to say, but man, I sure thought those Israelites were toast until God showed up. That's because God's the hero of the story. The Bible is overwhelmingly and primarily about what God has done, not what you and I need to go do. And that's exactly what Mary does next. She praises the God who saves. So read verses 39 to 45 with me now. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. That's her cousin. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed. That's her commendation from Elizabeth. Mary goes to share the good news, this great joy, with her cousin Elizabeth, who is herself about six months into a miraculous pregnancy. She was quite old, hadn't been able to give had children yet. And they're both ecstatic with the news that the promised Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, is soon to be born and that God will bring fulfillment and overflowing abundance of joy. Sorry, will bring fulfillment to all the plans and promises he's made over the last two or 3,000 years. And so out of an overflowing abundance of joy, Mary then writes this song. These are the following verses. She writes a song. So listen for God's heart for the humble and the underdog in his opposition to the proud and powerful as I read the final verses of today's passage. I want you to notice that God is the subject of almost every single verb in Mary's song. And it's a very strong parallel to what our Old Testament scripture reading was this morning. We read the song of Hannah, who herself couldn't conceive, cried out to the Lord, and he blessed her with a miraculous pregnancy, the child Samuel, who would become the prophet, who, the judge who would anoint David as king. And her song super closely marries Uh, mirrors Mary's song. But I'm going to read now the final verses of our passage. This is verses 46 to 56. Again, listen to the themes here. Who gets the glory? Who gets the honor? Who's the hero? Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. So Mary's song is the spiritual reality that we need to see this morning. We need to drink really deeply, especially from verse 49. Look at that again. He who is mighty, or the mighty one, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That, my friends, is really the Bible in a nutshell. It's what we celebrate every Sunday. It's what we celebrate in every song, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, that the mighty one has done great things for us. The mighty one, the Messiah is here. And so we, we shout out and praise with Mary. But unlike Mary, we know something that she doesn't know, right? We know that her son will enter the gates of his city, not on a war horse, but on a common donkey. We know that his crown will not be made of gold, but out of thorns. We know that his robe will be dyed royal crimson, but only by his own blood. We know that his throne will not be marble or alabaster, but a Roman cross. And so unbeknownst to Mary, that was God's plan to lay the sins of his people on the Messiah that he might die the death they deserve and take away God's righteous judgment and bring them peace with God. Mary, did you know just how true those sweet words would ring in the halls of your son's people that the mighty one has done great things for me, marching boldly to a Roman cross to save them from their sins? That's the greatest thing the mighty one has ever done for you or for me. And so now that we've seen this great cosmic mission of God, his purposes, with his people, with Mary, with Christ, his Messiah. I want us to go back and end our time by contemplating again the faith of Mary. And so look one last time with me back at verse 38. I want you to see these two verses in their relation. One is the power from which we, we get the faith of the other. So verse 49 was, the mighty one has done great things for me. And that's the truth that allows Mary to say this in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Right? After Gabriel announced that the child would be born to sit on the throne of David, and then he explains Mary's role in that plan, she responds in just like the most humble and faithful way you could imagine. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Look at Mary's earnest desire here to humbly serve God's redemptive plan in whatever way God had chosen for her. She doesn't protest. She steps right up. And in Mary's humble response, I want us to see a call to respond in the same way today. God was on the move in Mary's time to do a thing, a great thing, and God is on the move in our time as well. God is always at work because of his son and through his spirit to bring about the salvation of many who will say with Mary, the mighty one has done great things for me. And as we've seen this morning, God loves to work in human weakness. Inconsequential humans, to fulfill his purpose so that he alone gets the glory. Jesus is the hero of the world's story. He's the hero of my story. He's hopefully the hero of your story as well, although you might be the bad guy. So my call to us is not to become a hero, right, but to become a servant like Mary. As we've seen this morning, a backwater town in the insignificant American province of South Dakota is exactly the kind of place where God might like to work. Rapid City is exactly the kind of place where God might say, I'm going to sow the seeds of our nation's revival here because he likes to work through human weakness. And so are we willing to serve like Mary? 
Are we willing to love our literal neighbors, showing hospitality and charity in such a way that the lover, loving offer of Christ in the gospel is winsome and compelling to outsiders? Are you willing to till, sow, toil, and harvest crops and raise livestock in such a way that your neighbors see the new Adam exercising godly dominion in you? Are you willing to love, care for, and discipline your children in such a way that your children learn the love of the Father through you and er eagerly seek first the kingdom? Are you willing to practice law in such a way that the justice of Christ, who will judge all men with righteousness, descends on Rapid City and they see the kingdom of God at hand? Are you willing to faithfully serve in an elementary Sunday school class for 20 years so that dozens of young, women, young men and women testify to your faithfulness at their baptisms? Are you willing to inconvenience yourself weekly, perhaps daily, in order to seek out your coworkers and love them as yourself and thus fulfill the law of love? Husbands, are you willing to die to yourself daily as you know, feed, and protect your wife and kids as you lead your family into the specific mission or task that he's given you? Wives, are you willing to die to yourself daily as you respect and submit to your husband as his helpmate and co-laborer in, in redeeming a fallen world? There's one director of God's cosmic plan, and there's only one hero in the story, and there's one spirit who unites the cast, but there are millions of supporting roles. Some may seem glamorous, like being a uh, Christian artist or a great reformer or a prestigious seminary professor or something like that, but the reality is that most Christians throughout time have been and will be called to live lives of radical obedience, cheerful faithfulness, and humble servanthood in their homes and communities with almost total assurance that you will die and be forgotten within one generation of your death. That's the terms of service which God enlists people into his kingdom. And are we ready to serve like that? Are you ready to say with Mary, I am the servant of the Lord? If God calls you to public embarrassment and shame, like he did Mary, right? Are you ready to say, let it be to me according to your word? If God calls you to a life of obscurity and poverty, so that you can proclaim the mighty one has done great things for me to those who are unknown and poor? If he calls you to that, are you ready to say with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease? If God calls you to suffer danger or trial or nakedness or sword for the proclamation of the gospel in foreign lands, or even in this land, are you willing to say with the Apostle Paul, I am a bondservant of Christ? What if through the end of May, we all just simply committed to repeatedly Simply pray, perhaps a few times a week, perhaps daily, this really simple prayer. Behold, I am your servant, Lord. Use me however you choose. If you realize the shocking reality of what God asked Mary to do, that proposition should rightfully terrify you. God exalts himself through human weakness and suffering. And so asking God to do with you whatever he pleases is a pretty, pretty scary blank check to write. How on earth are you going to have the courage to respond like Mary did? How are you going to say yes to supporting a young lady through a crisis pregnancy? How are you going to say yes to discipling your unbelieving neighbor that you barely have a relationship with? How are you going to say yes to loving a tyrannical three-year-old through another year of tantrums? How are you going to say yes to any of these things and a thousand other trials if God calls you to them? The only way you're going to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice is if you have the rock-solid truth of the gospel in your boat. The mighty one has done great things for me. If God calls you to public embarrassment and shame, the only way you're going to move through forward in faith is if you trust in Jesus, the mighty one, who endured the shame of your sin 
through his public execution on the cross. If God calls you to a life of obscurity and poverty, the only way you're going to embrace that future is if you trust in Jesus, the mighty one, who did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but gladly humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. If God calls you to engage and build a relationship with your unbelieving neighbor, who might be a little rough around the edges, the only way you're going to faithfully, cheerfully dive into that is if you glory in Jesus, the mighty one, who died for your sins while you were still a rebel sinner. If God calls you to patiently endure the difficult and exhausting years of toddlers, tantrums, diapers, car seats, and never-ending messes, the only way you're going to lovingly and joyfully endure that season is if you follow the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Jesus the Mighty One, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising all shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The only way we're going to respond like Mary, I am the servant of the Lord, behold, let it be to me according to your word, is if we cling to the solid rock that Mary clung to, the Mighty One has done great things for me. What if you slowed down to meditate on Mary's example and on the host of issues facing your family, this community, yourself, and consider how God might be calling you to serve in his redemptive plan through human weakness and humility? Let's be really specific here. Each morning this week and the next, or a few times each week, we could just set aside five minutes to read Mary's song or even the song of Hannah, verses 46 to 55, and then just yield Right? Yield our time, our talents, our treasures to God and just hold them up and say, God, what would you have me do with these? Let it be to me according to your word. You've done great things for me. How can I serve you? If we can rest in what God has done for us, then we, like Mary, can be ready to do what God will do through us. And so to end our time together this morning, do something a little unique. I'm going to lead us in a responsive reading, actually, of Mary's song. So that when God calls us, we can say with Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So if you want to please stand, this is how it's going to work. We're going to preach these glorious truths to ourselves and to each other. I'll read verse 46. You read verse 47. And we'll just go back and, ver- back and forth, back and forth. I have the even numbers. You have the odd numbers. And yours are also on the screen here in bold and underlined. All right. My soul magnifies the Lord. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to pray and I invite our musicians to come up and get prepared for our last song. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, this is an unnatural thing that Mary did and that your word is calling us to do today. It is not natural to give up our rights, give up our privilege, give up comfort, give up power, to humbly serve. And yet that's exactly what your son did. He went from the highest heights of heaven to the lowest of lows. 
Father, may we be like him. May his own example of what he did to save us from our sin, from our own wicked pride, may that then spur us on to say with Mary, let it be to me according to your word. We're your servants. We want to do whatever you would ask of us. It's a very hard thing to say, knowing the things you've asked your servants to do in the past, the trials you put Abraham through, that you put Moses through, that you put Job through. Father, it's very hard if we pause and think about it to say, do with me whatever you will. But Father, may we have that attitude and that mind amongst us. May we be inspired by your son. May we be inspired by Mary. And may we lay down our lives, not counting them worth anything to hold on to because we know a greater life awaits us on the other side. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.